And Father, we do thank you so much for the mercy that you have granted us because of your Son, Jesus Christ. This wonderful God-man, the second person of the Trinity whom we've been studying and dedicating our lives to for many, many months, even years now, as we've studied this magnificent gospel. Lord, we pray today as we finalize the message that you spoke through Matthew, I pray, Lord, these truths would seal themselves in our hearts, that we could look back and see how you have matured us and sanctified us, and we could also look forward of how we are to continue to act and live and form our lives around your truth and the truth of Christ, Him crucified, resurrected, and ascended to your throne. Lord, we do, as always, pray for those who don't know you here today. We pray that you would speak to their hearts, regenerate them so that they could understand the gospel, compel them to repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, only you can do that in someone's heart. So we come to you asking for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Today we are privileged to study a very familiar text, the Great Commission, found in Matthew chapter 28. Folks, we did it. We finally made it to the last part of Matthew's gospel. It was a total of 168 sermons over five years, and it's been a glorious time of following the footsteps of Jesus. Started all the way from his birth, of course, to his calling, his baptism, to his teaching, discipleship of the twelve, his training of these men, all the ministry, all the miracles. Of course, the last year we have been studying that final week of Jesus' life, the passion of Christ, which concluded not with sadness and death and a sad martyrdom, but with resurrection. It's been a wonderful five years, and I don't think anyone's benefited more than I have getting up every single day for five years, thinking and meditating and looking at a text out of a gospel that deals directly with what Jesus has said or done, how people are responding. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time studying this. I was reflecting this week, thinking about this. My ministry began when I was age 18, so 29 years ago, and uh, it dawned on me as I was wrapping up this sermon, I'm probably somewhere around the halfway point, and, uh, which probably means I won't get to preach Matthew again before I die or God comes back. So it's sort of a sad day for me. The only solace I do have is that the next time I'll be really thinking about Matthew is when I get to meet not just Matthew, but the man of this book, Jesus Christ, face to face. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. This is probably one of the most well-known commands of Jesus Christ to his followers. But I do have to add, though it may be one of the most well-known, it is perhaps the least obeyed of Christ's commands, myself included. I'm not sure there's any more obvious directive anywhere in the Bible that we forget, ignore, or just plain disobey more than the command of Jesus to make disciples in fact, this sermon, as I began to prepare for it, actually some weeks ago, I decided that I would use this and use the next, the following weeks really to talk about this task and what are we to do and how are we to do this task in terms of following the Great Commission. 
I heard a story just this last week, someone telling another person about the gospel and that person receiving Christ, and it just warms the cockles of my heart, but it also reminds me that we need this constant reminder that we need to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Just think with me, all that Matthew said, this whole gospel story all the way through to lead us to this conclusion. Matthew was there at the very beginning. He was there all the way to Acts chapter 1, the ascension. Now, this is really Matthew's answer to the question, now what? All this stuff, all these truths in this wonderful resurrection, now what? Folks, this goes all the way back even to the Old Testament. God had a people. He had saved a people, and their driving purpose is to glorify Him among the nations. Yes, there's a shift. There's a Gentile shift grafting us into the vine. The answer to that question, now what what remains the same? He saved us. We followed Him in faith. Now what? Now we are supposed to glorify Him by making disciples of all nations. Well, let's read this together, the last and final section of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 16, there to the end of the book. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We are so blessed as we look at the Gospels and the writings here in the New Testament because the apostles who were in charge of writing the New Testament included many of Jesus' last words. And of course, Jesus did have last words before He died. The last words I'm talking about here are last words before He ascended, before He left earth. Those 40 days between His resurrection and His ascension, He He spoke to His disciples a number of times. He met with them, and He wanted His followers to hear certain things from Him. And He really seemed to be focused on them announcing the good news, the the message of Christ crucified, resurrected. One of my favorite preachers, James Boyce, pointed out that this was the case with Mary. Jesus told Mary, go tell my brothers. This is the case of the rest of the ladies we studied last time. Go tell the disciples. In fact, if you look at every post-resurrection appearance that we have in Jesus, there are ten of them in the Bible, in eight of them He tells the people to go and tell. There's explicit commission. Often the implication is that this would carry on beyond just where they were but to the ends of the earth. It should be no surprise that earlier in His ministry He told His disciples... As the Father has sent me, what? So send I you. As the body of Christ, it is our job to carry out His last words, which is the consummation of who He was. Of all the commands He gives us, we should know that this command 
is the essence of his mission. The apex and purpose is to get the message and the glory of, <clears throat> excuse me, the glory of God all across the earth. So for us to honor him, for us to remember him, for us to obey him, we must do the same. We must give our lives to others. You know, parents, I've got news for you. Your job, your calling, it's not to make sure your kids get into the right schools or have all the right talents and gifts and be involved in all the various and sundry things they can be involved in so they enter adulthood with all these different experiences. Your job is to make them a follower of Jesus Christ. Your job is to make a disciple. Your job is to teach them of Jesus. Your job is to love on them and Jesus. Your job, if anything, is to open the Bible with them and teach them the truths and the message of Jesus. The sad truth is a lot of parents are very good at giving their children all kinds of experiences, giving them money, giving them talents and gifts so that they can have a lot in this world, but they fail to give them the one thing that will save them, and that is the message of Christ. Even if you don't have kids, you have neighbors, you have co-workers, you have employers, you have employees, the same is true of you. These relationships God has put in your life, not just simply so you could function and get out of those things what you want to get out of them, such as money or friendship or happiness. It's to be a light, to be salt, the salt of the gospel. So you could stand as their only true divine influence, like a city on a hill. The, the consummate purpose of Christ is so that you would come and give your life for them just as He gave His life for you. Now, no matter how much pastors and preachers and evangelists go on about this fact, Christian researchers have discovered that Christians, by and large, don't share the gospel very much. So they've written papers and journal articles, even books on why Christians don't follow the Great Commission. Why don't Christians, by and large, do much disciple-making? Not only bad at this with our neighbors and friends, but sadly with our own kids. Christians are not very good at obeying the central command, Jesus' last words. Now, there are many studies as to why we aren't doing this. They give a host of reasons, but as I've looked at all these, I see there's really three fundamental reasons why Christians do not obey Jesus' final command. Reason number one, you're not saved. You don't share Christ. Because though you may have the information of the gospel or even the, the cultural accoutrements of Christianity, Jesus has never really changed your life. You're not a true believer. It's like me trying to convince you to go live in Australia. I've only visited there. I'm sure it's a beautiful country and great people, but I have no actual experience. And, and I can't convincingly tell you you ought to do this. In fact, I don't really have much of a desire to tell you to do that because I have never lived there. I have no real experience. And I think this is just the blunt truth of it. I think there are many people in the Christian churches, even in our own church, maybe you're not a Christian, and the reason you don't evangelize is you've only visited Christianity. Maybe once a week you visit Christianity. You guys know people like this. They, they come to Hawaii two weeks a year. They do it for about five years. And suddenly, when you talk to them, they're the expert on Hawaii. And you say, you've never lived here. You don't know what it is to actually live here. 
Maybe you're just a visitor to Christianity. Maybe you think of yourself as a Christian. Maybe you think you know stuff, but the truth is the reason you don't share Christ is because you don't have Christ. I'll just say this throughout the next few weeks as we look at this subject. I think it would be good for us to all just do personal inventory, prove whether or not you're in the faith. Am I genuine? As we go through the gospel and I help you understand how you can take these truths and share them with people, ask yourself all along, have I believed these things? Do I follow these things? Are these things that are true, not just in a mental sense, but do they define me and define my life? I think that's one reason why people don't share the gospel. They're not true believers. Second reason why many don't share the gospel is you don't have the passion. Maybe there's a desire down deep inside. There's some sort of nagging thought. You know, I know I should. I don't really do it much. I know I should say something, but it's a little embarrassing. You live your life, and you just don't do it because perhaps you're just, you don't have any passion about it. You meet people. You have all these different relationships. Even if in the back of your mind you, you know you should say something, you just don't because there's just no desire, really. There's no desire to share. It really boils down to an emotional position how you feel about the gospel, and you're just not that passionate about it. Finally, many people do not share the gospel because maybe you're not confident in your ability to share the gospel. Maybe you don't feel like you have enough verses memorized, or maybe you feel like they might ask a question that you don't know the answer to. You don't want to put yourself in that position where you're embarrassed or stumped. I think along that lines, maybe you have this thought, well, the people who share the gospel in, in, the, in the church among Christians are the ones who are real personable and type A and, you know, extrovert type people. They're the ones that will take care of the gospel sharing. But you don't make disciples because you don't think you're up to the task. Well, thankfully, the Bible addresses these things even here in our passage. Jesus helps us with these things tremendously. Let me tell you something. The joy of living in obedience to this command together, even as a church. I think this just turns into something great. Churches can get to this point where they're, we're sharing notes, we're talking to one another about those whom we're trying to teach the gospel, other people maybe who've come to the gospel, but they need growth, they need the maturity, they need to be made a better disciple. And the energy and the excitement that could happen in a church that gets excited about following the Great Commission. I, I think there's something awaiting for us at the end of this study. I think that only the Lord could see to it. This is how God has decreed He's going to build His kingdom. It's by us going out and sharing the good news. And I think if we all get on board here and begin to share this great mission, the truth of Christ and Him crucified, I think we could have great joy in the future. You know, God doesn't promise us results, but that is indeed how He builds His kingdom, so maybe God would even bless our church in that time. All right, let's get into this. To gain the heart of Jesus on this, we need to look carefully at his words. What was Jesus' heart when it came to sharing the good news? What did he want of us? The text here gives us three truths. I'm going to give them to you in imperatives, so commands, because Jesus' central verb, the verb here, is a command. And so it, it uh, will help us understand what Jesus is saying, and it answers that question. After we've heard and learned all of this, the life of Christ, the gospel of Christ, now what? Here, is our, here are our marching orders. So three imperatives here. Command number one, 
Obey the words of Jesus. Before we look here, let's just take a few moments to set the scene. A number of days, more likely weeks before this, Jesus had died and was resurrected. He'd made several appearances to the apostles, now 11 of them, not 12. And his purpose, again, was to first prove to them his resurrection. But it was also to teach them. Remember the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus opened up and began to explain to them from all the Old Testament, all the scriptures regarding himself. And so that era, that 40 days between resurrection and ascension, Jesus is showing them the truth of the gospel. He's, he's reminding them of all these things. He's commissioning them. I agree with most scholars here. There's no evidence that Jesus walked and talked and ate and slept like he did prior to his resurrected body, prior to his death and resurrection. It seems like as you study these post-resurrection appearances, he just appears and vanishes, appears and vanishes, which would probably be consistent with what we understand, what little we understand about uh, the resurrected body, the glorified state. And Jesus appears, he disappears, he appears, he vanishes. They seem not to know when he's going to appear. Sometimes he surprised them, sometimes they don't recognize him, and then he seems to vanish again. Now, it's possible, probably even likely, that this is why there were so many people gathered when Jesus gave the Great Commission, because Jesus didn't just surprise them. He told them a time and a place. Meet with me on such and such a mountain on such and such a day. And very similar to what happened in his ministry. You remember, looking back at Matthew, word gets out. And people start to anticipate the movements of Jesus of Nazareth, and they, they plan around that. They decide, oh, I want to be there. I want to see him. It was very likely that there were more people here listening to, the, listening to Jesus say these words than just the 11. Yes, they were there. There probably were many others there. In fact, no less than in five of the commentaries I read this week, the authors surmised that this is the event, this commissioning was the event that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about when it says more than 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. Nobody's 100% confident about that, but it certainly seems possible. You remember what would happen when he was in his ministry, he would get away with just the disciples, but word would get out and people would find out and suddenly he was trying to go to a home to minister to one individual and suddenly there'd be a, a crowd of people and I think this is exactly what happened right here. He's up in Galilee where he was loved far more than he was in Judea. He's up in Galilee, he meets them in a mountain and there are many people, many followers, loose followers, but also the 11 who were there and you can just sense the anticipation. Is this the time that Jesus is going to defeat the Romans, oust the crooked Herodian rulers? Is this the time he's going to execute justice on all those people, those false religious leaders who were responsible for his death? Is this the coming of his kingdom? Is this the physical kingdom of God realized in time and space? Is this restoring the nation of Israel? What is this all about? And people were excited and eager to meet Jesus again. Perhaps people were there who didn't even know, maybe not had even seen Jesus in his resurrected state. Maybe they just were there to see if indeed the stories were true about his resurrection. Maybe they're just onlookers. 
So all these people, they hear about the time and place, they, they gather to this space on the mountain, they, they gather in droves of people. The eleven there are waiting Jesus. All these other people, probably the other close disciples like these ladies, but also many, many others, and they're all just sort of dripping with anticipation. And Jesus just shows up. I imagine someone shouts, here he is. Jesus is here. Immediately they saw him. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. He's not even addressed the crowd. He's not even instructed anybody. He just showed up, walked up, or perhaps just appeared. And as soon as they saw him, they worshipped. And, it says, verse 17, some doubted. I think that little phrase, some doubted, it's a great argument, I believe, for the veracity, the truth of Scripture. You see, the Bible is not interested in tricking people. It's not interested in creating some sort of uh, narrative that's false and hoaxing people into believing in Jesus Christ and filling the Bible with a bunch of partial truths, things that would only make Jesus look good. If that were the case, I think they would only fill the Bible with everybody with a, a blind faith. No, the Bible is interested in the truth. The Bible is interested in including even the foibles of those who seem to be the most faithful. If the Bible was like many other sacred texts, it would do everything it could to, to hide any foibles of the heroes of the Bible. It would do everything it would to hide people's doubt, to obscure truth, to minimize any kind of negative So why is this phrase here? Why did they put this here? Why did Matthew write this down? Some doubted. Because that's what happened. There were some people, the word really there I think better is hesitant. There were people there who were hesitant. Now again, I don't think this was just the 11, so I, I think it's probably the others. I think by this point, even doubting Thomas had been proven wrong and he believed in Christ. I believe the 11, I believe those others that were close to him believed firmly in the resurrection, but there were many in this crowd who maybe had not even seen Jesus. They'd only heard the stories. Maybe they were not even in Jerusalem when this all took place. And so they were there, and they, they were hesitant to believe in a resurrection. There were those who believed, but there were those who had not yet been convinced. Did He really rise from the grave? Is this some big trick? Is this really Jesus of Nazareth, or is this someone who looks a lot like Him? So they were there. They wanted to catch a glimpse. Well, what's the first thing He says to them? Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. This is absolutely staggering. You remember the birth of Christ. There's people worshiping Him, angels, shepherds, magi from the east. You see this in the Old Testament. He's called Wonderful Counseling, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And though He's a perfect God-man and you have all these people worshiping, most people have not quite gotten it that He is divine. And Jesus comes up and makes this staggering statement, I have all authority everywhere, even in heaven. Tells you a little about what He thinks of His deity, right? directs them to that mountain, they see Him, they worship Him, and He announces, first thing off His lips, I have total authority everywhere. 
Now this Jesus who has authority everywhere gives them a command. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Stop right there. Now I'm going to do something that I don't often do, and that is to get in the weeds of the grammar of this sentence. Uh, sometimes I just allude to what the original is saying. Um, I do want to get into the grammar of what's going on here. If you look at your text, just look there with me. In the English, in almost all English translations, what you have is two imperatives, two commands. Go and make. And you also have what the things that modify those commands, two participles. What are participles? They end in I-N-G. So you have two commands, go and make, and you have two participles, baptizing them. How are we to go and make? Baptizing and teaching. The two commands, two imperatives, go and make, two participles, describing those commands, baptizing and teaching. That's how it reads in the English language. However, this is not how it was written in the original language, and I'm not sure why. There's, I'm sure, some scholar who can tell me the history of translations and why translators have persisted on inter interpreting it this way. But in the original, there is only one command and three participles. There's only one command and three participles. You remember I said, two commands, go and make, and two participles, baptizing, teaching. In the actual Greek, which Matthew wrote in here, there's only one command, there's only one verb, and there's three participles. The original command there is simply make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples. The three participles are going baptizing, and teaching. And they, again, those participles describe that command, that verb, make disciples. So let's look at these things. Let's look at the command, make disciples, and then we'll look at the three participles, how it describes we are to make disciples. Now, first of all, make disciples. Make disciples, that little phrase is vital to our theology, it's vital to our attitude. What does it mean? Well, the word there is mathetusitai. It doesn't really matter. It's from the word mathetes, which means, simply means disciple or follower or acolyte. So just at the first glance, when we look at this text, perhaps we can deduce something. Jesus did not commission His people to get people to pray a prayer, to repeat some magical prayer that gets people into heaven. He did not commission us to go out in the world so we can get people into a church facility so the pastors can do their magic, work their magic on them. He didn't, get us to, he didn't commission us to go out of the world and get people to sign some sort of card of decision or go through some sort of ritual. Now, many of these things may be good and they may take part in the process, but at first glance, just looking at the words that are used here, go make disciples, this idea of making disciples using the very word that was their title, the disciples, the first thing they would have thought of is what Jesus had done to them. He had invested in them for three years. He had taught them. He had mentored them. He had corrected them. He had loved them. He had comforted them. He had rebuked them. He was thoughtful and he was patient for 
where they were and what they needed to know. But he was also blunt where they needed bluntness and clarity. This is not some sort of high-pressure sales job. Let me put it succinctly. Jesus did not command us to be salesmen. He asked us, commanded us to be teachers. Our job is to invest in the lives of others. The salesman is interested in closing the deal. You want to go to heaven? Pray this prayer. You're in. That's all you got to do. I remember a lady came to me one time and said, I led my entire family, all 70 of them, I had a family reunion, had led them all to Christ. I said, this is amazing, almost too good to believe. She said, yeah, we were praying for dinner, and I said, I want to pray. And I said, everybody repeat after me. And I had them pray the, pray the prayer of salvation. I said, something tells me there's some people there that weren't that sincere about that prayer. Getting someone to agree with something as quickly and efficiently as possible, that's the job of a salesman. A teacher, on the other hand, invests his life into someone. He's interested in the student's understanding of truth. He's invested in his student's growth. Now, that is not to say that sometimes in the stroke of God's providence, as you're living your life, there aren't moments, a divine appointment, where it's important to, to share the gospel to someone you may never see again and had never seen before then. This happens in this course of events. This happens in our lives, right? You, you meet someone, and it just seems obvious. This is a moment that I can share the gospel with this person, and God impresses upon us to do that. No, it's not a high-pressure sales job, but it is to at least get the basics of the gospel to these people. That's, I'm not denying that we ought to do that. But that is the exception, not the rule. When Jesus said, make disciples... I think he's talking exactly what they would have thought, and that is invest your life into someone. See them all the way from not being even knowledgeable of Jesus to the knowledge and truth and reception and faith and repentance and ongoing maturity as they live and walk and operate as a believer. It used to be in churches you had two different ministries, the evangelism ministry and the discipleship ministry. And boy, you had to put all your money in the evangelism ministry because at least that gets people to heaven. Don't worry too much about the disciples. Oh, yeah, we want discipleship, but at least get them to the kingdom. At least get them in heaven. Get them to pray those prayers, get those baptisms, make it happen as quickly as possible. Well, Jesus doesn't bifurcate. He doesn't divide evangelism and discipleship. It's all one thing. Make disciples. Make disciples. You think about it, this is a, a bit of a relief, I think, for all of us. You don't have to feel a sense of failure if you can't close the deal. You don't have to get the sense of either you're going to accept the gospel or we're never going to be friends again. You don't have to be like that. You can understand this is something that takes time. This is something that will, you'll be there with them for the long haul. I remember I was on an airplane from California back here, back home, and... Um, I was sitting in the bulkhead, you know, the bulkheads are the divisions of the airplane, and I was sitting in the bulkhead, and it was one of those awkward bulkheads where uh, on the descent, the flight attendant comes and she has a jump seat that's right in front of you. And you're like knee to knee with this person. And uh, so I just decided to um, lean into the awkward, and so I said, I bet it's pretty awkward that you have to sit here, isn't it? And uh, the lady said, yeah, and we got to talking, striking up conversation, and I was able to share the gospel with her explained about Christ and the gospel and faith, and she had some disparate ideas about Jesus and the cross and these kind of things, but she didn't 
uh, know everything. She hadn't put it all together. Well, she was amazed, but she did not pray and receive Christ. She didn't say, I want to do this. She just was amazed. And I talked to her, and I found out that she lived in a town uh, in California where I had a friend who was pastor of a church. And I said, well, if this is not something you're, you're ready to do, you need to go home and talk to this guy. What did she do? She went home. She talked to that guy. She got saved. She got involved in the church. And the other day, just the other day, my friend at that church retired. And she was at the retirement party. And she came up to him and thanked him and hugged him and told him how grateful she was that God, so many years ago, on an airplane, had brought her the message of the gospel. I didn't have to be there when she prayed to receive or get her involved, but, but God gave me a moment. And sometimes we're called to do that. But again, that would be more of an exception than a rule. All of us, at any given moment, every Christian ought to have people whom we are thinking about in terms of our disciple. Parents begins with our children, maybe our family members, maybe a co-worker, maybe neighbors. We are to make disciples of these people. Now, what are the participles? Let's, let's look at each one of these participles. It describes for us what, the, what it is to make disciples. The first participle is going. That's technically what it says. Going, make disciples. Going, make disciples. Real briefly, this one's easy to understand. The best way to see this is as you live your life, you live your life as though you've been sent. You live your life as though you've been sent. You're always in a state of going, whether it's going out of your bedroom, into your family, to your neighbors, to your friends. You are always going. You're surrounded with lost people. This world is full of lost people, so you've been sent among them. Every relationship should have some sort of redeeming value. You should think in terms of how can I find a way to bring the gospel to these people. You have to think about this. Every time you wake up, you're an ambassador for the Almighty. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you've been sent by God to this other place, this world that's filled with people who don't believe truth, who are confused with all kinds of sin. It will take them to hell. Your job is to introduce them to the King of Kings and introduce them to the idea of citizenship in this kingdom. So we're always going. As we're going, we are to be making disciples. And I remember a professor of mine, I think I've told you this before, a professor of mine told me that he was uh, teaching at a church and he was doing this little session at a church and uh, a young lady came up and she was dressed like a nurse and he assumed she was in the medical field and she, he just asked her, now what do you do for a living? She said, well, I'm a missionary. And he kind of thought, well, that's, that's strange. She says, I'm a mi missionary cleverly disguised by God as a nurse in the local hospital. That's the attitude of going, right? She understands. That's my job. I ought to be going. Uh, the second word, second participle is baptizing. Now, I'm not going to get super deep here. How would they have understood this word? Would be immersion. There is no... Uh, sign that they would have sprinkled people back then. In fact, if you look at that word in its original context, it would be for immersion. Jesus himself was immersed. He came up out of the water, it says, and then he had his disciples as they would go around and teach the truth, the, the story of the gospel. Even John the Baptist before him would tell that he would baptize people. And this is a way that they would identify with the message and the message teacher. So in, in essence, when they were baptizing, baptizing people, the, the baptizee would essentially 
uh, be pledging their allegiance to this new community of people who follow this teacher, who follow this, these truths, this doctrine. And of course, that became part and parcel what it means to be a part of a church. You, you are baptized, and you're baptized into the membership of a church. That's where we get the idea of church membership. We didn't make it up. Paul's the one that talked about being members of a body, and that's a local body of Christ. How do we become that? Well, we profess Christ, and we do that publicly through this ritual, this baptism. In other words, as you go, as you're making disciples, remember that part and parcel to making disciple is having them commit publicly and professing Christ and introducing them into the family of God, a local church of believers. They, they're, they're not just supposed to be some sort of separate individual who goes about their Christianity sort of lone wolf style. They're to be a part of another people. Even if you're in a far place, far play, a place far away from a church, teach them about this. We see this happen even with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He understood this. He understood he must become a part of a people, pledges allegiance to these people. Well, here's water. Can I be baptized now? Can I join you now? Yes. So part of what we do as we train them and teach them and make disciples is to teach them to be a part of a body of believers, a local group of people who've also committed this and made this profession of faith through baptism. So make disciples. How do you do that? You do that going. You do it baptizing. Final participle, teaching. Going, baptizing, teaching. Specifically, that's teaching them all that I've commanded. And this goes right along with what I said about the definition of making disciples. It's not just a matter of getting them to know the bare minimum and pray a prayer. It's a matter of making them a follower of Christ, helping them understand all that you can help them understand with. Again, that's the ideal. It may not always happen that way. It may be a situation like Paul said, Paul planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. It may be a situation where you're not with them all the time. They PCS or they go somewhere else. But your objective is to see them through this whole process and teach them everything. All that I've commanded, you're teaching them. Again, we're not salesmen, we are teachers. So ladies and gentlemen, this is the simple words of Jesus. Going, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching them. Answers that question, now what? Now what are you supposed to do, God? Make disciples as you live your life. Join them to the body of Christ and teach them. Do you obey the words of Jesus? Do you obey what He's commanded? Number two, call all people to follow Jesus. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. Many of you know... The word nations right there means something, that's, that's sort of in the English, something more political. The word is not nations, it's the word ethnicities. And I think this is just absolutely one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Go, therefore, make disciples of all ethnicities. I know we live in a dark world. And um, I just have to, maybe this is sort of a newsflash to some of us, politicians can't make racism go away. Oh, they've tried. They have done everything they possibly can. In fact, some of them are trying what could only be described as reverse racism to get rid of racism. But they can't do that. 
The only thing that can break down those barriers is becoming one with somebody in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that would break those things down. That's the only thing that you would see someone as, as completely the same. Why? Because you're both laid bare before a holy God. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter what your ancestors did to their ancestors or their ancestors did to someone else's ancestors. Incidentally, all of our ancestors were rotten, filthy people and racist. We just need to all admit that and acknowledge that. We all, all have people in our history who did horrible things. And we're all in the same boat. And so we come to someone else who's in the exact same boat we are without Christ. We're all laid bare before Christ. We all need the truth of the gospel. We all need to have faith in Him and repent of our sins. And it destroys any kind of racial barrier. It destroys any kind of thought that somehow I am individually better. No, because we're all dead in sin. That's the starting point. It's not up here or down here or whatever. We all start as those who are dead in sin and needing Christ to come by His Spirit and regenerate us. You know, it's interesting... We make all these efforts to, you know, fix racism. And I know politically and in a secular world, you have to do things to try to help their, to, to stifle racist ideas and thoughts. I know that those things have to happen. But in the ideal, where there should be no racism, sadly there is because of sin, but the, the place there should be no racism is the church. There should be a picture of heaven. There should be a picture of what's true about heaven, about eternity, that people of all nations and all tongues are bowing at the feet. Someone showed me a picture the other day. It was from several years ago. They were showing it just to show, remember this person and remember that person? And they showed me this picture, and I looked at it. It was four beautiful ladies in our church posing for this picture, very faithful members who are here. There was a Filipino lady. Standing next to her was a lady who's Fijian Indian, a lady from Peru, and another lady who's Hmong, which is a small Asian uh, hill tribe in China, Southeast Asia, and behind them was a Korean guy photobombing them. <laughs> I had a rare moment of gushy sentimentality. I just thought, isn't this beautiful? They're, they're not posing like the president's cabinets. Look, we are of many different nations. They, they didn't even think about ethnicities. They just loved each other. They just love one another. They just like being around one another. They have the same values. They know that they've only been saved by the grace of God, and that's what unifies them. They could care less about race. They could care less about ethnicity. They're all God's children. Theologians, we talk about the gospel truth, and we use a word about the gospel, and that is the gospel is exclusive. And by that we mean it is only Christ who can save. But we don't mean that the offer of the gospel is exclusive. The offer is utterly inclusive. The, otter, the offer is to all. It's to all. The gospel is go to all ethnic groups all across the world, and let's get busy to get the gospel to the world. All right, one more thing, and I'll be very brief. I know the hour is getting later. Obey the words of Jesus. Call all people to follow Jesus. And third, very briefly, trust always in the presence of Jesus. Trust always in the presence of Jesus. Verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is nothing better that Jesus could have said 
at this juncture. Given this great commission, and I'm sure immediately some of the disciples felt trepidation. The introverts in the crowd probably thought, wait, 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 hang on. Is there some other role I can have? I'll do the paperwork. I have to carry this out? I was reading a book, and... Uh, the beginning, it started out with an imaginary moment in heaven right after Jesus ascended up to heaven and some angels came up to Jesus and said, oh, it's great what you did. It's amazing. You're back here with us in heaven and we just want to glorify you and praise you. Now, who did you leave down there to, to share this message? And Jesus says, the disciples. And the angels just laugh and laugh. Those, those people? How weak and worthless are they? How immature they are. They're, they're going to fail. But Jesus then points them to the Great Commission. Behold, I'm with them always, even at the end of the age. Again, reading these religious statistics as to why people don't evangelize. I was reading that people fear. That's sort of the number one idea we fear. We fear rejection. Right? You're afraid of being rejected. You're afraid of someone saying no to the gospel. You've given them. You've jumped out here. You stuck your neck out to share this gospel, and then they just... Reject it. No thanks. Your fear of being rejected. Your fear of, there's a fear of being put on the spot to articulate about things you don't know about. Some people are afraid of that. When it comes to evangelism, this is what makes them afraid. They're afraid they're going to be stumped and they don't have the answer. So they think, well, man, I'm not all studied up. I'm not some sort of apologetics professor. I have never had any kind of training Someone's going to ask me a question, and I won't know how to answer them, and they're going to go to hell because I didn't have the right answer. Well, that's not the way it works. But don't be afraid of that. Another fear, and I think this fear is probably getting real, more real for Americans than it has in the past, and that is the fear of being persecuted. You out yourself at work in your neighborhood as someone who loves Jesus, you might be persecuted. You might not get that promotion. You might be talked about in whispers behind your back. You might even join people across the centuries who've actually been mistreated. But all along, we should bear the words of Jesus here. Behold. That, that word, behold, that means look, pay attention, wake up. Behold. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, let's pray that we trust Him in all these things and obey His words, following Him to the end. Father, we love You. We thank You for all that You've done for us. We do pray that You would give us a deep desire to take Your truth, to share it with others. I pray, Lord, even in our own way, Lord, there are probably people in this room who are new Christians, perhaps really shy Christians. Lord, I pray that You'd convict them and convince them that even in their own shy, quiet, introverted way, they can begin to make disciples as they go. Provide us with opportunities even this week. And Lord, I pray that in the next several weeks as we study these passages that point us to the truth of the gospel and instruct us on how to share the gospel, I pray that you would provide us many opportunities. And I do pray for the salvation of souls. I pray that through the ministry 
of the people in this room and beyond this room who are part of our church, that you would convict us and convince us to go and share Christ and make him known in the nations. Lord, there are those who will be called in this room, called to either go assist a missionary or even become a missionary. This direct, lifelong pursuit of, of actually giving up everything to simply share the gospel. And I pray that you begin moving in their hearts and desire toward that. Lord, bless us as we seek to obey your words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand with me for a benediction inspired by 2 Corinthians 5. Now let us go knowing we are ambassadors for Christ, pleading with all to be reconciled to God, whose Son became sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.